Good afternoon, brethren. We're up to our normal attendance uh, today of the 110, so that's good. We're holding our own at over 100 nearly every Sabbath. And uh, welcome to any guests who are here. I certainly enjoy meeting you. I don't see anyone new, but uh, there may be. And uh, certainly glad if you could come up and say hello. Uh, I'm very grateful for this answer to our prayers. Mr. Ames mentioned it earlier, but just for the sake of the tape here and the people who will hear it later, I asked you last Sabbath, he remembered, to be praying about Word Network, and now we're on Word Network, and we did not know that we would be. We heard at one time they had an opening, and then, frankly, Mr. Pyle found out the opening was withdrawn, and we began to pray, and the opening opened again, (laughs) and Christ is the one who opens and shuts the doors. So uh, it looks like we've definitely got it nailed down, he says, and the... uh, We've definitely told them, and they say that we're on, and beginning, of course, the 18th of this month, reaching twice as many people, apparently, as uh, Inspiration Network was doing. So we're very, very grateful for that. We should thank God for that. He heard our prayers and helped us get on this big door. We continue to have a very good television response, uh, not just television, response to all of our efforts and have more prospective members constantly writing and calling. So we're grateful for that as well. Please pray for them and pray for the growth of God's church. That's something we should do because we do need to grow, you know, not just in the power of reaching the world, but in numbers of people. And I know a lot of our young people are concerned because they're, they still look around and there's a few of them in the, let's say the 20 to 40 age group. And uh, a lot of us are older and some are younger. <laughs> but anyway, please pray for that, that God will bring along many more people. And I know if we do our part, He will. But anyway, We still can grow and pray that God will grant that. Well, now, brethren, I want to speak on something that is extremely vital. It really is. It's basic, and yet, as you will see, it's something we really do need to review, not just once a year, but talk about it more and get our mind and our heart and our soul wrapped around it. And I really mean that. I want to speak on Jesus Christ and the true gospel. Jesus Christ and the true gospel. I know that I personally heard Mr. Herbert Armstrong more than once, it was at least twice, maybe three times, get up in either public or semi-public in some front of our ministers, once I know it was in the house of God, and say, brethren, I'm partly responsible for this because I'm your leader, and I was trying to get so far away from what the Protestants are doing, talking about sweet Jesus, you know, and just give your heart to the Lord, then now I've just been talking about the kingdom of God, and I've got all of us, we talk about the kingdom of God and the law of God and the government of God, and we too often leave out Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. And that's true. I was looking over this morning a lot of my sermon notes going back three years, and I preached on Christ and the things about Christ, frankly, a couple, three dozen times. So I haven't left it out, but I haven't just emphasized this one aspect of it. And we need to do this very, very often, not just at Passover time. It is an absolutely vital part. And we've really got to understand it. And you older brethren and you young people that are being baptized or not yet baptized or thinking about being baptized, please think about this. This is something that has got watered down in the church of God, not just our church, but I think all the branches and in the church of God in general for, frankly, decades And we really need to understand it. And Mr. Armstrong mentioned that very heartfeltly. So we want to get this this straight. Did Mr. Armstrong, for instance, and remember he told us to follow him as he followed Christ, 
So if he doesn't do something enough or didn't, we need to improve on that. He told us to grow. He would want us to grow. And some of these hard heads can't believe that he would want us to ever change anything or grow in any way. But that the truth was all set at the time he died or at some time in the mid-1960s according to their memory. And if we don't recreate our doctrine and the whole work exactly the way they remember what they think Mr. Armstrong taught, then we're heretics. Brethren, Mr. Armstrong was not like that. He just was not. And please talk to Mr. Pardian. He's, he's, he was there. We and I were both with Mr. Armstrong back in the 50s and the 60s and 70s. And Mr. Ames came in through the 60s and, and lived and worked along with Mr. Armstrong in that sense and worked for over 20 years. So he knows a lot of this as well. But I go clear back to 1949, and I remember what Mr. Armstrong said over and over and over and over again. And he said things just along the line that I am telling you today very, very much. So did Mr. Armstrong leave Christ out of the gospel? Is Christ not to be mentioned as a vital part? And even when we state what the gospel is. Well, I put this in the latest ministerial bulletin. I asked Mr. Ames not to mention this part because I wanted to tell you something. I put it here and uh, I tell the ministers, here's some pointers on how to handle these various attacks from ministers. And I mentioned how... Mr. Party and I were part of his inner circle for many, many years and talked to him and knew him apart from just hearing him. We worked with him, had lunches, meals, dinners, fellowship with him. We know what he taught and so on. But it's a very vital key to get this one thing straight. So without going through my letter, which I don't want to do now, but I want to say that here is the background of the letter I'm about to read parts of to, to you at least from Mr. Herbert Armstrong. And Dick Armstrong was very close to his father, and he was very close to Dick. And when Dick died, Mr. Armstrong began to pray and fast, and even before Dick's death, more than he had been doing for several years. And he would study and pray and fast, and he would always come back with one or two articles, maybe write some special letters, and use that time to fast, sometimes a juice fast or a vegetable fast, or some get closer to cleanse his system, and he would use it to rejuvenate him physically, mentally, and spiritually during that time. This letter was written, he dates it here, and our ministers all see that we've actually had them photocopy it, put it right in just in his own typing and the way it was. Palm Springs, California, December 12th, 1958. Dick died either the July 31st or August the 1st of that previous summer. And here it was a few months later, Mr. Armstrong was still thinking very profoundly and during a time of prayer and fasting. He said, I've just noticed in going over letters written in the letter answering department a tendency, as this reminds me, most of us have unconsciously followed. And I want to tell you, and I hope all our ministers will hear this, because sometimes we don't realize it when we're talking about conversion, we're talking about baptism, we're writing about it or whatever, we don't emphasize this nearly as much as we should. We've all got to do it more. He said, it is the habit of speaking of salvation only in terms of, quote, living a life of obedience to God, end quote. We seem to have a tendency to speak only and solely of obedience, commandment keeping. We seldom mention that experience of conversion, utter surrender, total repentance, accepting Christ and living faith as personal Savior and receiving the Holy Spirit. We've got to think a lot more about that, all of us, and then our own lives go back and review that. 
and be sure that we have and do continually rededicate ourselves to this. He continues, We do not seem to stress sufficiently Christ as Savior, faith in Him, and then His faith in us, living faith which is inseparable from obedience. We must remember that the Orthodox fundamental worldly churches and evangelists stress almost solely just Christ and faith in Him and accepting Him as personal Savior. Our more or less general omission of this leads many automatically to assume we preach a gospel of earning salvation by works. And they do. You know, they'll just say, well, you were just trying to work your way into the kingdom. And some of you unconsciously have, have talked about that and used those kind of analogies. It's kind of like if you do 15 or 20 spiritual push-ups every day, you can just push up yourself right into the kingdom. And that's not true. You have your part to do. But to be converted, it means you really totally surrender to God through Jesus Christ and have a heartfelt feeling about Christ's shed blood and surrender to Christ as your Savior and your Lord and Master whom you will obey and give your life to God through Him. Have a profound feeling about that. Getting back to Mr. Armstrong's letter, he says to a world almost accustomed to hearing altogether about Christ and a born-again experience, which, of course, they do not understand, we put ourselves in God's truth in a wrong light. Instead of speaking of being converted, changed by God's or by real repentance, surrender, faith in Christ, and receiving God's Holy Spirit, Mr. Armstrong writes, we speak of, quote, coming into the truth. And I've done that a lot too. It's not wrong to use that on occasion. That's what you have to do. But quote, coming into the truth. That's the term we often use in Ambassador College and the work in Pasadena. When did you come into the truth? End quote. Uh, a man may come into the truth, that is, let a certain amount of truth into his mind and still be totally unconverted. We must not lead people together that we believe only in commandment keeping, which to them means Saturday keeping, and earning salvation by works. Paragraph. We must stress the whole truth more. Repentance, surrender, Christ as Savior, being changed by God's Spirit uh, as God's gift, by grace, following our conforming to His conditions. We don't earn it, but there are conditions of repentance and faith in Christ. The change from carnality to spiritual mindedness, being begotten, begotten, he writes, and then the overcoming and enduring and growing life of obedience and living faith with Christ living his life in us. Let's not leave Christ and his grace out of our speech and letters. With love in Jesus' name, Herbert W. Armstrong, written on the twelfth day of the twelfth month, 1958. This is what God's apostle wrote when he was in a very heartfelt attitude himself, frankly. Herman Hay went out there two or three times, not just this time, but I think we went once, but over a period of years he would have us come out and give him advice or help look over his article or a new book that he was writing and talk with us briefly. And he had Milt Scott, the advertising agent, come out occasionally and go over some new station ideas if there was something. And he'd break his fast for those meetings he wasn't fasting for three weeks. He would just fast totally for a day or two. And then other times he'd be just on juices or something or even eat a whole meal, of course, it was some time. But he was constantly drawing close to God during that period. 
and very close to God, I know, when he wrote this, because he was that way for months, and uh, seeking God in every way he could. Well, brethren, think about what Mr. Armstrong wrote. Now note what is, the, is in the Bible and it's been there all the time. What does the Bible emphasize? Does the Bible say we're just to talk about the kingdom of God and the law of God and the government of God and that's it? No. The Bible talks constantly about Christ and His sacrifice. And I don't have time here. It would bore you if I started through the book of Acts. But just skim yourself if you'd like to tonight or tomorrow. Most of you are off tomorrow and Sunday. Just sort of look. You don't have to read every word. Just skim. What does the entire book of Acts talk about? over and over and over, talks about Christ, His death, His sacrifice, uh, His resurrection from the dead. That was the main thing they talked about back then. How come we talk about more about the kingdom of God and the coming kingdom and prophecy? Well, because His death and sacrifice and the law of God was taken, I mean, uh, excuse me, the law of God was taken for granted more back then because all the Jews, the early Christians, did keep the law, in the letter at least, and they knew about that. And then the new thing to them was Christ and His death and His resurrection. And they were thrilled by that. But today we've heard that stuff, although incorrectly in Protestantism or Catholicism all our lives, but what is new and exciting, especially to our television audience, is to think that the great God of the universe is about to intervene, send His Son back to this earth as King of Kings, and all the prophetic things that are going to happen first. And that's a very good hook to grab people's attention and help them focus on the gospel. But is that the whole gospel? No. The Protestants have a misunderstanding of how they use it. But a vital part of the gospel, the good news, is that you and I have been horrible sinners. I have been. You have been. We have been, brethren. Let's not kid ourselves. We've all deceived ourselves and done things that were very wrong in the past. And we have to be forgiven. And the good news is we can be totally, absolutely, completely forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I'm sure when you think about it and picture it in your mind, you think about Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and all the other 12 apostles and the other 500 brethren who perhaps saw Christ after He was resurrected, some of which may have also seen Him hanging on the cross from a distance. And when they heard him scream out that late afternoon at 3 o'clock in the springtime, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then this young soldier, they say an Italian killed Christ. Well, we don't know that. A Roman soldier. We know the Jewish hierarchy delivered him up. God let that part of Israel deliver him up. And then the Romans represented the Gentile world because it was the Roman Empire. But it may not have been an Italian soldier. They had conscripts from all over the world. Anyone could have been there as a soldier. Some young unknown soldier perhaps heard Christ scream out and saw him suffering or something put it in his mind. God did at the right time. And he turned and rammed that spear in his side and blood and water spurted out. And then he breathed his last and his blood was surging down his legs, his ankles, and down on the ground. Some of you saw the movie, Ben Hur, which pictured that it was raining. And in the pool, we don't know it was raining. That's just the way they picture it. But the pool of water turned to blood, and then it began to 
run down. And they cut a picture of the fact it was running down to the rivers and into the ocean. The blood of the Son of God, that was shed for your sins. God came down in the flesh to do that. To die for you and to die for me. Because we need that. We needed that. And we need it now. And you read in 1 John how we've got to continually confess our sins. It isn't just we did before baptism. We've got to know that we are still sinners. He that says he does not sin is a liar, it says there in 1 John chapter 1. We continue to sin. We've got to get down on our knees every day. Frankly, it's a good idea if you do this and say, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I'm still sinning. I'm still making mistakes. I'm not perfect. Please apply the blood of Jesus Christ to my sins now. Because I've, I've sinned a lot since I prayed to you last. And have that concept in your mind. That you're a forgiven sinner. And as you heard me preach this sermon three or four years ago. That we are the church of the forgiven. That's what I called us. The church of the forgiven. We have all had to be forgiven of our sins or we're not here. And anyone here, here who has not really repented and has not been forgiven. Maybe a visitor, an honored visitor. And we love you and you'll come in later. Of course, we hope. But you're not yet a full member of the family of God, begotten family, unless you have God's Holy Spirit. And you have to really repent and be baptized first to have that happen. So let's notice what the Bible says about all of this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, brethren. 1 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 1. And I'll say before I start in, I could read you dozens and dozens and scores of verses. I'm just going to read a few. I don't see to read, read, turn here, turn there again and again. Just read four or five key ones. But all through the New Testament it says things like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he'd been describing how some were saying, I'm a Peter or Paul, and they were following different men. And he said that in verse 17... Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. All right, now he talks about the gospel. What is the true gospel that Paul is talking about here? Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ. Oh, the cross of Christ. Some people are embarrassed to talk about the cross. Oh, we don't talk about that. No, we do. The cross of Christ should not be made of none effect. For the message of the cross, the message of the cross... He's just got through talking about the gospel. The gospel involves the message of the cross that Christ died there. Yes, you could call it a stake. Nearly always it had a cross beam. It's not a symbol. Some say, well, crosses had pagan connotations. Yes. Yes, they did. All kinds of things had the, the fleur, fleur de lis and the four-leaf clover and all kinds of things in, neighbor, and, and, and nature have been used as a pagan thing one time or the other. One of our dearly beloved, and I loved her, deaconess up in the church years ago. Better not get further identify her, but you've heard of her, some of you older brethren. But she was very buggy about things like that and told me when I was the young minister there at the time, well, you know, she said the crosses are pagan, and so she felt we ought to tear up all of our picket fences because they had, you know, picket cross, picket cross. I said, look, Mrs. Jones, her name was not Jones. I said, if you do that, you're going to have to blow up every, almost every building in this country because inside you've got the main posts and then you've got cross beams and you've got to blow up everything. Well, I thought of that. Well, it's good to think about that all through. You, know. <laughs> you can go buggy on these things. 
It's not wrong to say cross or staros, stake, but we know it was a cross in most cases, but we're not worshiping the cross. We don't say, oh, I love that old, uh, old rugged cross, that wonderful old uh, electric chair that killed so-and-so, you know. No, we don't talk that way. We don't worship the thing that killed Christ, but we know He went through that. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The New King James, again, is more accurate on all just verse after verse after verse like this. Not have perished, but is perishing, are perishing. You are being saved. You are perishing as a process. But to us who are being saved, as they have it correctly here, we're not saved yet until the resurrection. But we're being saved. He that endures to the end shall be saved, Jesus said. Who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, so that's enough at that particular point. We want to really understand that. That was part of the gospel that Paul was talking about here. Notice chapter 2 now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, he tells them, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was Paul's main thrust in his preaching. Was Paul a pagan? You figure it out. This is what he was emphasizing at that point as a very vital part of the gospel. Because it's absolutely wonderful good news that you and I can be forgiven our sins through the shed blood of the Son of God. And then we're able then, through Christ living in us, we receive the Holy Spirit. That's the next thing. We grow in grace and knowledge. We have Christ living in us. And that's another bit of good news. We'll have the Holy Spirit to help us. And then finally, we're going to be in God's kingdom. And that's an absolutely wonderful part of the gospel. But before that happens, Christ is coming back as King of Kings. And then, finally, we're born of God into the very family of God. All four of those are parts of the gospel as I enumerate them in the, in the booklet that I wrote. What is the true gospel? Those four parts, you see. First, Christ's sacrifice. Next, the fact we receive the Spirit. He lives His life in us. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, He comes back as King of Kings. And that's good news. There's going to be a world government to bring genuine peace on the earth. And finally, ultimately, all of us, God will be all in all. And everyone who's still living, every personality will become part of the family of God, the kingdom of God, the God level of existence, born of the Spirit, and be glorified spirit beings in the family of God. Nothing is more glorious than that. But all four parts are part of the gospel. But you have to start somewhere. And you can't even get to receiving the Holy Spirit, part two, unless you go through part one. Foundational repentance, heartfelt repentance, and acceptance of Jesus Christ shed blood. That's the starting point. So we've got to understand that. And that was part of Paul's gospel. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So let's really appreciate that. Turn to chapter 3 now. And I, brethren, could not speak to you, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, as to spiritual but as to carnal, uh, as to babes in Christ, I fed you with uh, milk and not with meat. And then he shows how there were strivings among them. 
You see, they had not really repented. And we have to realize that. Some people are striving for power. And some say, I'm a Paul or I'm of a Peter. We're not to be like that, brethren. You're not to follow me. I don't want you to follow me either. But don't follow anyone like that. That's wrong. Say, I am a Christian. I am bought and paid for by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that is to be our attitude. And very humble about that. So we've got to understand that fact very, very deeply. And now let's go to First Peter chapter 1, if you would. First Peter, First Peter chapter 1. And notice how Peter writes it in a different way, of course. Verse 18. He says here, Knowing that you were not redeemed. How were you redeemed from your sins and bought back from under the death penalty? You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Can I think the New King James words it well, aimless conduct. We were all in some horrible sin. I wasn't out strangling people under the light of the moon or something when I grew up. I was just a normal high school kid, junior college kid out here, wanted to have fun, but breaking God's Sabbath and cussing and lying and fighting and selfish and filled with vanity until God began to deal with me. Aimless conduct, just wandering around, wanting to have fun, wanting to have fun, just wasting time. Aimless conduct received by our society around us. But we're not redeemed with corruptible silver and gold, but we are redeemed with the precious blood. Get this, the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, back before this present society ever existed. The one whom we now call the Father and the one in the Old Testament who was called the Word, Jesus Christ as he became in the human flesh, talked and decided that one of them would come down here and die, become a human being, allow human beings to torture them, to beat them, to die for our sins, to reconcile us to God. And they planned this out, perhaps many thousands or even millions of years ago. So this was foreordained before the foundation of the world was a basic part of God's plan, but was manifest in these last times for you. Peter called it the last times 2,000 years ago. Some people make fun of us because we're living, saying we're living in the last days, and we said that back in the 1950s or 1960s. Well, it was true. You think about God, and He created the world and had this in mind maybe millions of years ago, and now 4,000 years went by, and it still hadn't happened, and then a little more than 4,000 here. By the time Peter writes this, it was in the last days. And we're in the last of the last days if God does have a 7,000-year plan by almost anyone's chronology. We're at the end, very close to the end, of the first 6,000 of those 7,000 years. That's a reality. That's not some weird idea. Most scholars understand that. But we're redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and God planned this from the foundation of the world. Turn to 1 John, near the end of your New Testament, 1 John chapter 5, brethren. 1 John chapter 5, and notice here, again, I could read a longer part of the passage, but won't take time. It says here in verse 10, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he's not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony... This is the whole thing wrapped up 
in a limited way, of course, in this verse. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. Do you want to live forever? I do. I don't want to die and have all my thoughts and my plans and my hopes and my dreams are just all gone and I'm like a rock or a piece of dust. I would like to have an interaction with my Father in heaven and interact with the one who became Jesus of Nazareth. And I would like to be alive in whatever form. We know it's going to be a spirit body and interact with exciting people like Moses. Say, Moses, how was it? As you walked through the Red Sea, was the, the, was the wave up there 30 stories high or was it 60 stories high? And exactly which part of the Red Sea? All these guys have a different idea. It'd be fun to talk to Moses. How all this other stuff happened? King David, how did you feel as you approached Goliath? Did you have cold sweat under your armpits? Well, I was in the Golden Gloves. You know, they made us sit in chairs uh, two by two and you're next to the guy you were going to fight in a few minutes. So we would sit here, and the guys were up in the ring in the earlier bouts, and then you moved up here together. You're kind of looking each other over. Well, I can take him, or you might be afraid to say, he can take me, you know, <laughs> whatever your attitude would be. Then you move up to the third set of chairs, and then the first, the other bout's over, then you get up and fight this guy you've been sitting next to. So you kind of have a little bit of a something. You have cold sweat, you know, and you kind of sit there, what's going on, let's get ready. Psych yourself up. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to beat him, beat him, beat him. Okay. That was my attitude at least. Carnal, of course. But how did David feel as he approached a man who was perhaps 10 to 12 feet high, may have weighed five or 600 pounds, a tall, powerfully built, trained warrior? And David was not some little shepherd boy, as the Protestants have him. Nothing says that. He was probably about 18 or 20 years old. But he had not ever been in battle before. He did say to Saul he had slain a lion with his own staff and some other things. You know, he's a pretty brave young man. He was probably well built. When you read the story of his life and how these other men really respected him. He was not some wimp. But most of the, a lot of his other warriors were bigger and stronger than him. He was of average size. And his nephew, nephews Joab and... Uh, uh, Asahel and Abishai were apparently bigger. They were from his sister Zeruiah and uh, her sons, his nephews. And they, when the, some of the giants later began to try to kill him as he got older, his nephews would step forward and kill them often to protect Uncle, Uncle David and uh, so on. I'm thinking Rod and Jonathan Manier may protect me someday. <laughs> anyway, I'm just kidding. But he had, his, he had his, you know, what was he thinking as that big guy comes? Clump, clump, clump. Which then, and we're looking forward to being in God's kingdom and helping people, teaching people a way of life they do not understand. We assume that everybody's like us. They're not. They're starving to death over in India right now. Not everybody, not as much as they were when I visited India. But there's still the outback areas that you read about where people are starving. And all through areas of Bangladesh, of course, there's constant trouble and starvation and floods and famine and disease. Vast areas of Afghanistan and the Middle East and Africa and Central and South America. Literally hundreds of millions of people going hungry right now, tonight, all over this earth. Some of them being beaten, tormented, raped, humiliated over and over and over again, as I've told you. Would you like to be part of straightening out the world and dealing with these bad guys in love, 
but with total power and total wisdom to do it the right way. I want to be there in God's kingdom and God's family. That's a wonderful part of the kingdom of God, the wonderful part of the gospel. But the first part is through Jesus Christ. You've got to be forgiven your sins, and you will not be forgiven, and I will not be forgiven if we have not really repented and heartfelt repentance and keep on growing, which means keep on repenting virtually every day of our lives. We may let a few days go by if we get weak, but we shouldn't. So God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life, and will not have life, as far as that's concerned, as you know. Of course, that ties right in with my favorite verse, Galatians 2.20, where the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. I've had to let the old self die, he was saying. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Paul was not dead physically. Yet not I, and he uses the Greek word ego, E-G-O, meaning the ego, the selfish self. So yet I live, not the old vanity, not the ego. Yet I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You see, through the Holy Spirit, Christ has got to live in you. You've got to have the Son of God or you do not have life. Christ lives in me. The life and I now the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith. And the King James has it right on this one, because we've checked that with Greek scholars. It's not in, but of. We live with the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ gave himself for you. Christ gave himself for me. Please think of that, brethren, not just at Passover time. When you think, who am I? You better think, I'm part of the church of the forgiven. You want to think, I've been forgiven of my sins. And thank God for that. Frankly, it's a good idea to thank God for that every day. But again, many of us have just kind of forgotten all that. But a lot of the early Christians had that as a major part of their thinking, and we should too, brethren. We really should. So, Brethren, what makes you a true Christian? What makes you or me true Christians? Number one, real repentance, heartfelt repentance from your sins and from your very self, your selfish self. You just don't repent, I did this out here, but you have to come to realize that I myself am intrinsically evil, I'm wrong, I've got to bury the old self, give myself to God. Because every one of us in the past has let Satan come into us and influence us. Human nature as God made it is not necessarily terribly evil, but just basically selfish. But the real evil comes in through Satan the devil as we grow up. His broadcasting system comes into our minds. So we've got to have genuine heartfelt repentance. Secondly, we have to have full belief, real belief and heartfelt acceptance of Christ as your Savior through His shed blood. And you ought to think about His shed blood. Leviticus 17.11, The life is in the blood, God said there and elsewhere in the Bible. Christ's life was in His blood, and when that blood was poured out, He died. And so it does talk about, as we just read, the precious blood of, 
of Jesus. Do we talk about all the time and that's all, like the Protestants? No. But we don't want to leave it out, on the other hand. We should have an emotional feeling about it. It's good to have an emotional feeling about it before baptism, but I'm done wrong and I've got to be forgiven because I'm a rat. And God has got to clean us rats up, you know what I mean, and really understand that about yourself and not kid yourself. Well, I'm pretty good and I just grew up in the church and I haven't done too much bad or some of the rest of you have been a good Protestant or a good Catholic or something. No, none of us have been very good when we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. I certainly wasn't, and frankly, none of you were either. Thirdly, you want to have and come to, through God's help and His calling and His Spirit, a total surrender to God and to Christ as your Lord, your Lord and Master whom you will obey. And He's to be the Lord over your very life and over every aspect of your life. We need to think about that. Every aspect. All kinds of people come into the church, and I've dealt with them now because I came into the church over 57 years ago. And I've had some experience. I've been around the track a few times, if I may say so. And I can name to you, and I'd better not do that for the sake of hurting anyone who may still be alive, but there's this evangelist who used to be big and tall and booming voice and powerful. He fell away. Then this other guy was a pretty smart businessman and had his own business and came up, and he was the third man in the work for a while and the second man for a while, and he fell away. And then others came from the Sardis church, and they were evangelists important. Way up there, they fell away. And right down the line, evangelist after evangelist after evangelist, and leader after leader after leader. Now, some of them are still alive in some other fellowship, perhaps. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the ones who literally left the truth entirely. That's kind of frightening. That's kind of frightening. You know, as Paul said, or Peter said in another context, this is not part of my sermon, but since I'm talking about it, I think I'll turn to it here uh, back in, uh, uh, well, hopefully I can find it. Uh, yeah, First Peter chapter 4, verse 18, he says, If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. You see, if the, if the righteous are scarcely saved, don't think, well, I'm so good, I'm just saved by ten miles. Satan will never get close to me. Oh, yes, he will. Satan will attack this church if we are doing more of God's work, imperfect as we are, and we are imperfect, but if we're actually reaching the world with the gospel of the kingdom more powerfully, where is Satan going to attack? Where is he going to try to divide and confuse and get at us and get at us and get one person in the church against another? Get one minister in the church against another, as he did over and over, had these men turn on Mr. Armstrong. Was this something just in global or living? No, under Mr. Armstrong I'm talking about. This happened over and over over a period of 36 years that I knew him and worked with him. So it's not something new. Satan's very clever. He will get at where God is working, and we have to understand that. Anyway, we've got to really accept Christ and have a Savior, but also have a full surrender, come to a complete, total surrender to God and to Christ as Lord 
and master over every phase of our lives. Some people, in effect, say, well, you know, uh, I'll surrender to God, but I'll, I'll keep this part of my sex life over here. That I don't want God butting His nose in my business over here. Or I'll keep my finances over here. I don't want God to butt His nose into my finances. I'll hide this part of my money and this and that and so on. Or I'll keep God out of my marriage or I'll keep God away from my children. I don't have to do what God says there. I'll just do what I think is right and so on. People have all this, these ways of reasonings and I've seen that to the degree, brethren, to the degree we follow God's ways, we're blessed. But all of us have watered it down to some extent here and there in our lives and to that degree we'll see problems. And then other factors enter in, of course, the world we're living in and your relatives and, you know, all this kind of thing. Sometimes people get divorced in the church and we say it takes two to tangle and both sides have mistakes. We know about that, but sometimes one person is overwhelmingly responsible. The other person certainly wasn't innocent totally, but it's very clear that one was mainly and sometimes overwhelmingly responsible. But there is sin in any case. If both were walking God's ways, it would never happen. Never, never, ever. God says, I hate divorce. It would never, never happen. So we all have sins. We've got to understand that. To the degree that we follow God, we have His blessing and His power. Okay, let's turn to Acts chapter 2 now and go through this whole thing about how we come to God and what conversion and, and what the gospel is all about. Acts chapter 2, brethren, and here, of course, is a very uh, uh, fundamental part of the gospel. Nothing more fundamental in a way than this. This was the first inspired sermon on the first day of Pentecost of the New Testament church. And Peter, the leading apostle, was preaching the sermon. And so just before he did, well, he was telling him about David who died and, and uh, how he pointed to Christ. And he said... Uh, in verse 34, Acts 2, 34, For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, in other words, David had an immediate Lord, we know he was Jesus Christ, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, you sinners! And here he was looking at the whole Jewish hierarchy. At least a lot of them were there in the temple. It was a big mass of people. He was taking his life in his hands when he said this. Again, I don't think we always realize that. I tell you, this was an exciting time when Peter made this statement. You have killed the Christ. You have crucified. God has made him Lord and Christ. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Not all of them, of course, but many of them and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, and you know the story, I can repeat this, because I did hundreds of times on baptizing tours, counseling people, repent. That's the first thing. When John the Baptist came along, go back and read it in the early chapters of Matthew and especially Luke, repent. That was his basic start of his message. Repent. Turn around. Quit sinning. That's the first thing Jesus said. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. That's the first thing Peter says here. Repent. 
be so heartfeltly upset at yourself and the way you've lived and how you've broken God's laws and trashed His whole way of life and how you've been selfish and vain and self-willed. Self, I want my will and I, you know, become sick of yourself and repent and be baptized because baptism, as you know, is being buried in the water, not sprinkled with water as I was in the Methodist church and some of you were sprinkled or poured or whatever. But baptism means go down into the water. It means immersed. It's a picture of burial, as as you know. Be baptized in the name, in the authority of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of sins. You're baptized that your sins may be forgiven. You've got to have your sins forgiven. And you shall receive the gift. You don't automatically have it. You don't grow up with it. God's Spirit may be with you as God calls you. And I've seen many people with God's Spirit with them. I remember Mr. Raymond Monero and I baptized a whole bunch of people in South Africa back in December of 1960. Mr. Armstrong sent us down there from Brickett Wood. And these people, some of them had waited not just for weeks or months, but for years to be bad. They were just stuck off at the other end of the world. We were a little work. We hadn't been out there yet. We were, no, none of us had ever been there. And when Mr. Manera and I got down there, frankly, both of us agreed, these people were basically already converted. I think the Spirit had fallen on them, but we certainly baptized them and laid hands on them. As, as uh, Peter said to the ones there, when you read about it, I think in Acts 19, what, what hinders these people from being baptized? And he went ahead and baptized them even after the Holy Spirit came on them. So the Holy Spirit was either in them or powerfully with them, you know, helping them, strengthening them, and guiding them at that time. And other, many other cases that I, I have known. I know one lady, a German lady up in Nebraska. I think her name was Fritz or something like that, but she, she reminded me so much of Herman Hayes' mother, whom I baptized. And Berkman there and I were on the tour together, and I was the leader of the tour, but she was a farm woman and lived out alone. Her husband was going to come, and we were afraid of him getting there and getting a gun and shooting us because she, she told us he was, he'd be pretty mad. But we went ahead and counseled her anyway as we, we had a lot of exciting experiences on those, tour, on those tours. And uh, I don't think he ever came. I can't remember. But anyway, he didn't shoot us. We're still here. <laughs> but uh, she she said, yeah, 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 we explained this and that and this and that. And she'd been reading the literature and she was so happy. She was just beaming. And then we say, well, you do keep the Sabbath. Oh, yeah. And you know, the Sabbath is Saturday. And she went like that and her eyes were kind of, what's going on? What's going on? You see, was sort of in shock. And I realized what happened. She'd been thinking that Sunday was the Sabbath, like my old Methodist grandmother did. She used to talk about Sunday being the Sabbath. And I said, no, Mrs. Fritz or whatever, Frizz or Fritz or something. I said, Saturday's the Sabbath from sunset to sunset. And I went through the whole thing and showed her how the seventh day and Saturday was the seventh day we took over to the wall. She said, oh, 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 yes, I've got to do that. And boy, she started doing it right away. And a few weeks later, she took a bus, even though her husband threatened her. She got a Greyhound bus, maybe it was six or Eight weeks later, the Feast of Tabernacles all the way down to Big Sandy and was there <laughs> and took her life in her hands to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But anyway, she was, she was converted <laughs> and we saw her continue to stay, you know, as long as she was older, so she's not alive now. But God's Spirit had been with her. But you don't have God's Spirit in you, certainly no guarantee of that, unless you repent, really repent, 
and go through baptism after repentance and after a heartfelt acceptance of the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your sins. So you, you do this for the remission of sins. And then he says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a promise. For the promise is to you, he says in the next verse, and to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, Peter testified to them and exhorted them, saying, We be saved from this perverse generation. How much more can we see that today, the generation in which we live? Repent of going along with this generation and repent of your own sins and your own vanities. Come out and be separate and be the people of God and give your life to God and really mean it. This is what makes you a Christian, brethren, these three things. So you want to understand. Then in Acts chapter 5, turn there with me if you would to chapter 5 of Acts here. And beginning in Acts 5 and verse 27, why they were being challenged by these Jewish leaders for healing this man and other things they had done. And Peter said, For truly against your holy servant, not child. King James has it all fouled up. They keep putting child here. He wasn't a little child when Peter said this. He was a servant. So the word servant is used. Anyway, when they had brought them, that is, the apostles, and set them before the council, Acts 5.27, the high priest asked, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? You see, in the name of Jesus Christ. And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and tend to bring this man's blood on us. Then Peter, he was always the leader, did the main speaking. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. And brethren, we're going to have to say that someday. Mr. Ames and I and our other leaders in the church here, we're going to have to say that someday. And we may be beaten up or thrown in jail, but we've got to obey God rather than man and really believe that. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. See what He preached to them? That Jesus was the Savior and helped us have our sins forgiven. And we are witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. He doesn't give it unless you repent of sin, and sin is breaking God's law. And so you repent of that whole way of life, and then God, at that point, will give you the Spirit to help you keep the law and help you change, help you grow in grace and in knowledge. But all the way through, he talks about Jesus Christ being our Redeemer. Going to 1 Corinthians 15, and we've given you this before, but we do need to really understand this without me reading uh, uh, every verse necessarily. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, brethren. And here is a very powerful uh, chapter about the gospel. And he emphasizes just one part of the gospel here, but it sure is the gospel because it's in your Bible. It's always been there. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, Paul writes, the Corinthians, I declare to you the gospel. Oh, here's the gospel. We shouldn't talk about Christ being a big part of the gospel. That's bad, right? <laughs> no, wrong. That's about all Paul does talk about through this whole passage. The gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, 
by which you are saved if you hold fast. Oh, you see, if, if you hold fast that word which you have preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, uh, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. All right, that's part of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. That is very good news. Otherwise, we're all dead men. Think about it. We're all dead men here. Unless Christ died for our sins. And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that He was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain at present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, no doubt James, his, the Lord's brother, who was called later, then by all the apostles. Well, I would say, no, this must have been the original James. And uh, then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born due, uh, uh, born out of due time, because Paul was called later, of course. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, Paul said, because I persecuted the church of God. So, you see, this whole thing is about the gospel. Then he goes ahead and talks, as you see in verse 13, or verse 12, I mean, and verse 13, and on down about the resurrection. Good news! Christ was resurrected and is alive now as our high priest, our living head, our coming king. And then at the end, he says in verse 49, And as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We can't get there just as human beings in the flesh, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to have to die before Christ returns. Some of us, perhaps many of you, are going to live right up till Christ literally comes and you will perhaps in a place of safety and some will live right up to Christ's return. But we shall all be changed, even though we don't die first. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We're going to be made spirit, glorified spirit beings, as we preach so often. That's wonderful good news. That's also part of the gospel, and that's he concludes the chapter with that thought, without me reading all the verses. But Christ is talking of first and most through this particular recitation of the good news, which is the gospel. So let's understand that. That's the way they talked about it. We're getting back to apostolic Christianity, right? That's an important part of apostolic Christianity to have a deep, profound, personal, heartfelt relationship with Jesus Christ and thank my Savior, my King, and my God, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, at your right hand, please hear me and talk to God that way. Know that Christ is there as your Savior. You're a merciful and faithful high priest. You're living head and you're coming king. If you've really given your life to Him, if you talk to God, walk with God, you'll have that feeling, you'll have that relationship with Him. And He'll be alive in your mind, so to speak. So you want to be very aware of that and have that relationship with Jesus. Turn now to Romans 6. And here in Romans 6, he describes a little bit more about this whole thing of conversion, of baptism, and what that means. Romans Chapter 6, and uh, let's begin here in verse 3. 
Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? You see, symbolically, we're buried with Christ. It's a form of death. We're put into a, a, a symbolic grave. As I've said so many times, you know this, tens of thousands of men and some women have been buried at sea. You used to see that all the time in the Second World War and the First World War and old movies, you know. They used to lower their bodies. Now they have these, gun, these helicopters and sometimes fly the bodies right back to America to bury them. But back in those days, they didn't have any helicopters. And they didn't have a way to do it. They just buried them at sea. How many, maybe hundreds of thousands of men and women are buried at sea. That is their, that is their grave. We're baptized into Jesus Christ and we're baptized into His death. Through, though, therefore, we are buried with Him through baptism, through going down in the water, under the water, with the water surrounding us. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. We come up and we're to be different. We're not to have the old hates and animosities and competition and playing games anymore. We're to get over that. We're to get over our lusts where we lust for things, not just sexual things, but other physical things. That doesn't mean we don't rightly desire certain things within God's law. When we work for it, it's a good thing to have. It's a good thing for a man. God says it's a good thing to have a wife. He wants a young man to have a wife. But he doesn't want him to go thinking about Joanne and, and all these other women here and George Ann and Marianne and all the other Anns all scattered around and picturing loving them and so on. That becomes lust. He can have a one woman he thinks about in a right way, hopes she can be his wife someday. That's not lust. If he does it in the right way, not just thinking about sex, but about her as a whole person and his mate, his future wife, the mother of his children. So we're to have that, walking in newness of life after we have God's Spirit. For if we've been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. We'll be there in the resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, who's the old man? The old selfish self that was you and me. Here's what I want, and I'm going to do this. You don't need to tell me. This is my opinion. This kind of attitude, and then going ahead and doing it so often. The old selfish self was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And that's what we were before we had God's Spirit. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that. So we've got to really bury ourselves. And again, Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. You walk in newness of life by surrendering to let Christ literally live His life in you, changing you, guiding you, improving you, fashioning and molding you through His Spirit. And it ought to affect everything you think and say and do. In other words, I used to cuss and I knew lots of cuss words. My wife was reading me, was it yesterday or this morning, Dennis, she loves Dennis the Menace, her little friend, and the cartoon. And I guess it was this morning, wasn't it? And here was Dennis and his little friend walking along in the snow, and Dennis is telling... You know, Mr. Wilson is the old guy that they always 
tormenting and uh, he's shoveling snow out there, Mr. Wilson is. And Dennis tells his friend, he says, if you want to learn some new words, just throw a snowball at Mr. Wilson. <laughs> I could say if you want to learn some new words, work for Harry he was my boss at, Con- at Zeidler Concrete Pipe Company or work in the woods in Oregon or work on a construction. You'd learn all kinds of words, you know, not very good words, unfortunately. But you'll get a whole new vocabulary if you're not careful. Don't do that. And if you've had that, when I was first converted or being converted and afterward too, I'd have bad words come to my mind and bad pictures and I would look at a couple of the fellows who'd grown up very sort of cut off from the world, and sometimes they'd use some some bad expression, a kind of a double entendre that meant something nasty. And I smiled and thought, ha ha ha! Look at the stupid ones they're they're using this you know this this expression. It's a nasty expression. They didn't do it. They didn't mean it. And I begin to realize they're not stupid. I'm stupid. I'm stupid because I've been using those words a wrong way, and they're innocent. They didn't grow up hearing all that stuff as I did in Joplin High School and on the football team and working in these construction crews and so on. They were more innocent, which is good. But I had more to repent of. I did. Anyway, uh, we do have to repent and really mean it. But, brethren, some in our church have not emphasized Christ and His shed blood nearly enough in their own Conversion, when they were converted, and some of our ministers and leaders perhaps, so we haven't emphasized it as much as we should in talking about baptism and talking about repentance. Mr. Armstrong said when he came to repentance, he had to realize and felt like a burned out hunk of junk. He said, I came to realize I had all this vanity and I thought I was some great and so on, and I had to realize I'm nothing. And went through a heartfelt repentance that lasted for weeks, so he's thinking and praying about it as you read about it, and I've heard him explain it. It wasn't something he just suddenly did. Now, I didn't do it to the extent he did, I don't think, but I know I had plenty to repent of because I'd grown up totally in the world, and I had to repent. And for those of you young people who've grown up in the church, it may be harder for some of you because you didn't do, maybe didn't do quite as much outwardly, but you still have plenty of vanity and selfishness and lust and greed to repent of. And well, all of us should do that. And I'm not just talking to you, but you guys out there who hear this later, you all have plenty to repent of. And we better really repent or God will not give us the Holy Spirit. It's just that simple. So we've got to think about it, talk about it. That's a vital part of being converted. And you young people need to think about that. You young people around the world, if you're considering baptism, think about Jesus Christ and His shed blood. God had to come in the human flesh and shed His blood to clean you up. And you need to recognize that that you and I have been sinners, really sinners. And it took the blood of the Son of God to pay for that sin. And that's humbling if you're willing to admit that to yourself. We are the church of the forgiven, as I've said. Our whole church, to the degree we're converted, all of us, we have had to be the church of the forgiven. We're not the good people who grew up good. We've had to repent. We've had to be forgiven again and again and again. And we should think about it, pray about it, meditate about it. Back in Psalm 51, you see the man after God's own heart and this example of repentance. And I won't read the whole psalm, but I think it is good to bring it in at this point. Psalm 51, King David's repentance after his sin in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. We often say Bathsheba because that's the sexy part. 
But when God describes it, He calls it the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Because he murdered Uriah, but he committed adultery with his wife before he murdered Uriah. Both of them were horrible sins. And yet here's a man, you say, how could he do that? Well, he was living in a different age. I don't think I could do that in that way after having been in God's church for years. I don't mean to brag. I don't think most of you could either. But the Holy Spirit was with David and guided David, but they didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament had not yet been written at all. All the other kings around would grab this woman and sleep with her or make her a concubine. When they conquered, they just grabbed this one, that one. Even King Solomon had, what was it, 700 wives, 700 and 300 concubines. It's awesome. You think about it. What... what what an idiot, in a sense. And yet he's the wisest man that ever lived in some ways. But, you you know, you couldn't have any normal family life and sharing and sharing your plans and hopes and dreams with 700 women and 300 others. There's no way. But he was just thinking about it, and I'll try this and I'll try that, as he said in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that was wrong. But King David saw all that, and he could have said when he was caught, well, all these other kings do it, David. Why can't God? Why can't I? But David didn't have that attitude. He knew that he had different understanding, deeper understanding, even though God's Spirit, he had God's Spirit, but in a different time with a different level of understanding. He did not know it was wrong to kill either. God told him to fight the battles of the eternal, and he went out and fought the battles of the eternal and killed hundreds of people personally. You see, you have to understand that difference to understand this fully. How could David do it? Well, his whole mindset was different, but it still was a terrible sin. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Well, God, it wasn't too bad, and the other kings all did it. And do you see that in here? No, he says, for I acknowledge my transgressions. I'm not trying to say, well, I wasn't that bad, and, you know, all that. We didn't say anything like that. That's the kind of repentance God wants from you and me. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Quite often, I'll picture the face of Uriah, one of the 30 faithful wars, one of David's special wars that protected him and helped him. And he tricked him and sent him into the front of the battle that got him killed. David must have tossed and turned in the night thinking about that for months or years afterward, and for, from time to time, maybe till the day he died. What have I done? What a jackass I've been to take this faithful warrior of mine and send him into the heat of battle to kill him. I can't forget it. My sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. It wasn't just in the sight of these people. David had an awareness of the reality of God, and when you sin, you sin against God. Yes, you heard other people if you're a married man and you commit adultery, it's a horrible thing. You lack understanding or lack heart as it is there in the Proverbs. You lack the understanding of the depth of the feeling of what marriage ought to involve. You lack heart. You're stupid. You're without feeling to do that kind of thing. But anyway, the real sin is against God, not just your husband or wife or your neighbor's. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you might be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. God, you have every reason to wipe me out. You have every reason to have someone kill me. 
David was saying. You're, you're told whatever you do, I'm guilty. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He didn't mean his mother was a sin, sinner just because she conceived him by her husband, but the whole thing, once he was in the world, the sin comes in right away. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Purge me with hyssop. Clean me up with raw, you know, some strong soap or something. And I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones which you've broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. David knew his heart had been wrong. He thought about this woman, pictured her in his mind, let this thing, this lust go through and all this. He knew what he was going to do. Then he sent for her and brought her up. He knew better. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David sinned a terrible sin. And what did God do? David let the child die, and David had a special love for that child, apparently. And in that time, they seemed to have it. We, we, we lack natural affection today in our whole society, but David apparently had tremendous affection. He fell flat on the ground and fasted seven days for that child. And from then on, he had wars the rest of his kingdom. He was not allowed to build the temple and a whole lot of things. God humbled him. God humbled him. And yet, he's going to be our boss so don't get smarty pants against King David. God made the Bible preservers, Ezra, put this here. And here's David's record of his greatest sin. Years later, one of the Bible writers said, Only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite did David ever turn aside from what God commanded him to do. He may have made other little mistakes, but any direct big command. Only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So you send a little here, and you send a little there. Maybe it's not just like King David, but would you like it all laid out in Psalm 151? Well, George here and Martha over here, we're just going to have a whole chapter about your sins. How wonderful. I don't think most of you would like that, because we've all sinned. So let's be humble. Let's be humble. Let's realize we need the blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. We really need it, and we need to think about it. We need to appreciate it profoundly. I think there are seven things, and I don't do this every day, so I'm not trying to brag. I'm a sinner too and make a lot of mistakes. But here are seven things to thank God for you, to thank God for, I should say, as you pray. And sometimes I even begin my prayer. Mr. Armstrong said he often began and spent the whole first third or half of his prayer just thanking God. And here are seven things to thank God for. Thank God for this beautiful universe and this beautiful earth. Just think, he made this whole thing. If the earth were 1% one, 1 closer to the sun, we'd all burn. If we were 1% further away, we'd all freeze to death. He's given us a beautiful earth with everything we need. Secondly, we can thank God that He's created all of us, all the sons and daughters of men in His image. We're made in the image of God. We can thank God for that. We're made in His image with the tremendous potential that we have of becoming His full sons. Thirdly, we should thank God and Jesus Christ for giving of themselves and God for sending His only beloved Son into the world to die for our sins and sending Jesus and thank Jesus in prayer. not wrong to do that occasion. He said, Lord Jesus, thank You for coming down here and pouring out Your blood. 
He poured out His blood. And we can thank them for that. Fourthly, we can thank God for the Bible and say, thank you, great God. God inspired it. Jesus directly inspired it. This is His Word that He gave us, His mind, His plan, the way He thinks, His whole purpose for our lives in print. Here it is. Thank God that we have the Bible. Fourth or fifth, we can thank God for the Holy Spirit. If we yielded the Bible, surrender to Jesus Christ, accept His shed blood, then we have part of God's very nature, His character, His love, His joy, His peace, His wisdom, His power to help us, to guide us, to lead us in this life. Sixthly, we can thank God for His church. His church, 1 Timothy 3.15, because the true church is the pillar and bulwark of the church, of the truth. And I can say, Father, thank you for helping me to come into your church through Mr. Armstrong over 57 years ago and giving me all the knowledge and all the teaching and the experience. That's a marvelous thing. I'm so grateful for that. And you can thank God for bringing you into his true church. And seventh, thank God that you can be part of the work. Because we're not just in the church to have our salvation. We're also part of preparing the way for the return of the Son of God. And many of you in this room even get a salary from your work and your full time in the work, helping prepare the way. And that's an awesome blessing in spite of our human nature, in spite of our problems. You have that opportunity at the end of the age. Thank God for His work. Here's seven things to think about. But certainly, as you know, the third thing I mentioned is to thank God for giving us His Son, and for the precious blood of Jesus Christ to reconcile us to the Father. That's an awesome thing. Back in Revelation 5, brethren, Revelation chapter 5, if you turn there, you'll see in the first uh, few verses here how Christ is opening the seals. And uh, they were crying at first, who's, who's worthy to open the seals? And John wept much in verse 4. No one was worthy, but one of the elders said in verse 5, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loosen its seals. Here's a time in heaven later on. This great God at His throne, surrounded by a hundred million angels, as it says elsewhere, and the glory and the magnificent power that's there. It's describing a little bit of this through this book. But here's another part. God never forgets, and we better never forget, as he describes this glory, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders and stood a lamb as though it had been slain, a lamb with blood all over it, a lamb having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of God and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Verse 8, you know, and they sang a new song, and they said, You were worthy to take the scroll, verse 9, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, His precious blood. So this is the song of the saints here. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation that have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Yes, at the very end of the Bible, He comes back. God never forgets. Christ is covered or was covered with blood. The Lamb of God who died for you and died for me. Let's never forget. 